Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are around this increasingly troubled globe. And obviously, uh, one of the themes uh, in our time together uh, will be the uh, Israel Gaza situation. Um, how can it not be? But we will return to questions. I notice questions have not been coming as frequently in recent days because you, like all of us, will be watching with horror the events in uh, Israel and Gaza. But a lot have come in and uh, range very widely. So um, it will be great to uh, reflect on those points that you have all made with such uh, brilliance in recent days. Um, Rock and Roll Politics will be live on, well, it's next Monday now, coming, racing towards us, Monday, October the 23rd at uh, King's Place. And there will be tickets on the King's Place website, of course, and uh, that will, the link will be on the blurb for the podcast. Who knows where we will be by Monday, October the 23rd. But I think we need to get together to delve deep on many different uh, topics. So uh, do come along if you can. And just a reminder, my book, Turning Points, Crisis and Change in Modern Britain from 1945 to uh, Liz Truss, is uh, out now in all good bookshops. If it's all right with you, some reflections on uh, Israel-Palestine. You will have been inundated with analysis, and so I will keep uh, some observations fairly uh, brief um, because this is also a fast-moving story too, but so I'm confining myself to, I think, what will be timeless observations uh, whenever you listen to this and whatever happens. One is the broadest of broad thoughts, but I think it's worth reiterating uh, at a time like this, which is what we are seeing uh, with the appalling uh, attack on Israel and the appalling events in Gaza is what happens when politics breaks down. You are listening to a politics podcast. We are pro-politics, but we live in a sort of anti-politics era. But it is worth reminding ourselves every now and again that there are only two ways of resolving disputes in which, in the end, there might be compromise or one side prevails or whatever. One is through politics, through actually words, deeds, and the only other is violence. And what we are seeing in uh, Israel and Gaza is partly a failure of politics. When politics breaks down, uh, force is the option in an attempt to prevail, albeit imprecisely. Like, you know, what are the precise war aims of Israel? What were the precise aims of Hamas uh, in its act of brutality? Not clear. But nonetheless, force is now being deployed as a way of, in inverted commas, resolving the situation. I say in inverted commas because what resolution takes is far from clear. 
And when politics is so regularly kind of slagged off, you know, as uh, our great correspondent, uh, white van man Andy says, you know, all his mates are saying they're all the bloody same, they're all the same. That is the beginning of politics breaking down. When Johnson juxtaposed the people against Parliament, that is the beginning of politics breaking down. When Trump hailed the fact that he wasn't from Washington, really knew nothing about politics, was the anti-politics candidate. That's politics starting to break down. When uh, in Israel, you have a populist right government posing against the elites, that's the beginning of politics breaking down. And it is just when we watch the hell being played out in Israel and Gaza. Uh, just worth pausing for a second. Um, and I know in some respects it's a banality, but it is worth saying that for all the problems with politics, it is always important to be pro-politics because the only other way of resolving dispute is force. Now, force is not the only thing we are witnessing at the moment, we are also witnessing, uh, certainly as I record, frantic diplomacy. And it seems to me that Biden stroke Blinken, who is there doing the negotiating and the diplomacy, have been so far, um, this is where this podcast could date quite quickly, so far quite effective in um, preventing this crisis from spreading quickly. It still might spread, of course, with dire consequences. Um, and as I record, there has clearly been a degree, a degree of restraint on Israel. Um, it's at this point where I want to make another sort of banality, having put the case for politics against force, which we all coalesce around, of course, until people start saying politics is not delivering and then we're in danger. It should be possible, and indeed I think is largely the case in the UK and elsewhere, for people to express horror at what happened in Israel and horror as to what is happening in Gaza and what might happen in Gaza. And it becomes banal because we are so used to disputes where you take a side. Russia's invasion of Ukraine being an example. But on this, I think it is absolutely valid to do both. I can't think of any other human response, and everyone I've bumped into does express horror in both, in relation to both. Now, you then have a many-layered uh, response beyond that initial expression of horror. But the reason I make that point is I've read quite a few articles and they are moving and uh, written with great intensity uh, from Jewish writers. There were two in the Sunday Times the other day saying at the moment that Jewish people feel very isolated in the UK because of the demonstrations in favour of the Palestinian people, I think on the whole, beyond a few inhumane fools, it was not uh, in support of the Hamas attacks. It was a kind of wider expression 
of concern about what might happen in Gaza. When you think about in that very paper, the Sunday Times, where there was the two powerful accounts of how Jewish people feel isolated and fearful and vulnerable, there were also detailed reports of how Israel had the support of the US, the UK, the European Union. It really is complex and and multi-layered and nuanced. And nuance is important in this situation. And it was nuance, I think, that uh, Keir Starmer failed to get right in his early responses. You know, when he was asked on LBC by Nick Ferrari whether Israel had the right to uh, cut off water and energy supplies into Gaza, he at best equivocated or certainly gave the impression that he thought they did have that uh, right. And here we get into parochial, by no means the most important issue, uh, but an issue in relation to UK politics, uh, which has been uh, Labour's awkward response to this dark nightmare being played out in Israel and Gaza. You can see how it happened. Um, When Israel was attacked, uh, there was understandable and unequivocal support for Israel's right to defend itself. But you know, one of the things we do in this podcast is explore language and its imprecision. Now, in in terms of this crisis, perhaps imprecision is a virtue, but not wholly so. Because what does that mean? And when uh, Keir Starmer expressed, you know, you could see what was on his mind. I must not be like Jeremy Corbyn. I will not be like Jeremy Corbyn. We are going to show we have changed as a party. We will support without qualification uh, Israel. Although, of course, there was this one sentence qualification as long as um, uh, Israel complies with the uh, rules of war. Now, that qualification has led Labour into all kinds of problems, uh, coupled with its apparent unqualified support for Israel, because shadow cabinet members inevitably are asked if um, X is uh, complies with international law, why complies with international law. And because they are so determined to uh, be apparently unqualified in their support for Israel, to not have a half a millimetre gap between what Rishi Sunak says and what they say and what the United States say, they can't uh, expand. And um, you had David Lammy, who is more supple, Uh, in his uh, capacity to use language than Keir Starmer sort of having to say, I'm not an armchair general. I can't, I'm not going to say, I'm not a, I'm not going to be uh, adjudicating on what is and what isn't complicit with uh, international law. I think it's another example uh, of quite a few uh, where Starmer and his team admittedly in the heat of a party conference, did not fully think through the consequences of their initial response. And this is one of the problems he will continue to come up against, having uh, demonised Corbyn by not allowing him to stand as a candidate. Um, Now, many people 
Many listeners to this podcast think that was the right call to make. But the demonization has uh, consequences which are problematic. One is this kind of overreaction to make a distinction between the old Labour Party and the new Labour Party under Keir Starmer. And my understanding is he is going to be a bit more nuanced. And by the time you hear the podcast, the, you might get some of that nuance. Um, but initially, there wasn't. And uh, that uh, has been uh, a problem for Labour in recent days. Um, and there are ways of doing nuance, which they could have done, uh, which is to fully understand the horror felt in Israel Israel's right to respond, but then clarify what form that response could or should take, which they didn't do. And an example of that is a post that uh, David Miliband put out on Twitter. And David Miliband, of course, now in uh, New York, uh, CEO of the International Rescue Committee. And he put out a series of tweets on how Gaza should be protected um, in the light of what was happening. He began by saying, horrific violence that violates fundamental norms of humanity has claimed the lives of over 1,200 in Israel and 1,400 Palestinians, including 447 children. So a very balanced assessment of the hell. And then he went on to specify very clearly what uh, constitutes the rules uh, that should be applied. Protect civilians from further harm. All parties to the conflict must upheld their obligations. Ensure that civ civilian objects are protected. He goes into detail what that means. Ensure safe and timely humanitarian access to those in need via all avenues. Protect aid workers in line with international humanitarian law. Lift any actions that deprive civilians of goods essential for their survival. And he goes into detail about that, including water and electricity, the area that uh, Keir Starmer foolishly equivocated over. Support the call of UNICEF for a pause in hostility, hostilities to allow aid agencies to reach civilians. Scale up humanitarian funding. So uh, those were seven precise actions that David Miliband called for, uh, that Labour should be calling for. Uh, and that not only is right in itself, but then gives Labour a degree of precision uh, when being interrogated as to which particular action is within the rules of war and which might not be. Um, and I think the kind of problem with the demonization of Corbyn um, and not being allowed to stand as a Labour MP has actually deepened the mythology around Corbyn and uh, is making Starmer walk into some traps. Now, he might have walked out of them uh, by the time you hear this podcast. Who knows? Um, and it is an incredibly challenging situation. Uh, for everybody in different ways. I'm talking parochially, you know, the, the hell is in Israel, Gaza, uh, the, the real nightmare. But in terms of British politics, and it, you know, it's America that has leverage, not Britain, but it does matter. 
that uh, in the end, they, they get this right, the Labour Party. Back briefly to the demonization of Corbyn. You see, by not even allowing him to stand as a candidate, uh, Starmer has uh, created a, a villain out of Corbyn. Now, we've had discussions on this podcast in the past, and this is not the time to do it again, as to whether Corbyn is or isn't anti-Semitic. What must be certain, surely, is that Starmer did not think Corbyn was anti-Semitic, because although he is famous for his pragmatic flexibility, I don't think he would have sat in Corbyn's shadow cabinet if he thought Labour was being led by an anti-Semite. But having demonised him subsequently... He is asked now, I don't know if you saw the interview with uh, uh, Beth Rigby, um, in which um, she, this was uh, after his party conference speech, and listen to last week's podcast if you haven't. Uh, it was a good speech in many ways. There were gaps, uh, worrying gaps, but on the whole, I thought it was a very well-argued speech. But she went on and on about how could he have sat in Corbyn's shadow cabinet and how could you have advocated Corbyn to be Prime Minister. These questions become harder, not easier to answer, if you don't even let him stand as a candidate to be a backbench MP because you see him as too um, extreme or dangerous. It reminds me a bit, the context is very, very different. But uh, during the Labour conference, uh, Keir Starmer was getting a lot of praise from the uh, uh, so-called mainstream media uh, for his absolutely decisive, unequivocal uh, backing for Israel uh, to respond, not just, uh, of course, we're human beings, horror at what happened in Israel by Hamas. And incidentally, Hamas, in wanting to remove Israel altogether, is again part of the anti-politics nightmare. The two-state solution is where politics can come into life. But with Hamas there, uh, it's very difficult to see how these negotiations get going. But if Israel remove Hamas, are they going to occupy Gaza? What is the war aim? The imprecision of the war aim is um, a problem, as it was in Afghanistan and Iraq. So back to that briefly. Yeah, so, that, so everyone was saying, oh, yeah, Keir Starmer's strong leadership, kind of brilliant, very bold, courageous stuff. And it reminds me of Tony Blair when he was backing Bush in the build-up to Iraq. Um, it's forgotten now because everyone turned in the fickle world of these kind of conflicts. But everyone was saying, you, you, whatever you think of Tony Blair, what a bold, principled leader sticking with Bush uh, and going uh, for the war in Iraq. They soon turned when um, it was clear that the whole situation was far more complex than that. You're now getting kind of, certainly as I record this, speculation of Muslim Labour councillors resigning and all this kind of thing. And um, high praise for a leader defining himself against the party's past as Keir Starmer was doing last week and uh, 
Blair was doing in Iraq, you know, because his, to understand Blair in Iraq, you've got to understand that Blair was not a world expert on the Middle East, but he was a world expert on labor in the 1980s. And a lot of his moves was defined against labor in the 1980s. I mean, this is uh, going to be a dominant theme for some time. And as I say, one of the most dangerous things, I think, is the imprecision of the war aims. The idea that force is clearer than words, and we are all uh, interested in the imprecision of words. But you see, what was what was Hamas, Hamas's objective? I mean, you know, the speculation about they were uh, trying to destabilize the entire region because they were worried that Israel was forming a close closer ties with the likes of Saudi Arabia and so on. So this was going to kind of completely blow that apart. And uh, but, but presumably one of their calculations must have been um, this will provoke Israel into a bloody response in Gaza. And obviously Hamas doesn't give, give a damn about the number of deaths that might follow in Gaza. And sure enough, we could be on the edge of such a reaction. But even so, what does, where does that lead them? And similarly with Israel, the removal of Hamas to what in uh, Gaza? Anyway, no doubt we will be returning to uh, these issues in our time together in the uh, coming weeks. And I know you will all be having kind of nightmares about it. We all are. What is quite good about podcasts, I think, I've heard a few, is there has been space for uh, nuance, which we haven't yet had on the UK political stage. Let's see if we get it. But um, yeah, what form does resolution take? How do wars end? Uh, we know how this one has begun. How does it end? Uh, situation, by the way, that applies also to Ukraine. And of course, the, the whole thing is interconnected, isn't it? You know, Iran, Iran's relationship with Russia, and so on. Anyway, uh, enough of my reflections. Um, you, you will be following this avidly uh, uh, and as bleakly as, we, as I feel um, now. So let's return to your questions. I, a lot of your questions came in a few days ago, because as I say, I think we're all in a kind of state of depressed shock about what's going on. But they have been fantastic. And if you want to join in our never-ending conversation, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. Uh, steverick14 at iCloud.com. Let's uh, go to uh, Matt Watts, who lives in the cool area of London, Hackney. Oh, uh, Matt's a fantastic podcast. Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, just back from King's Place. Okay, great. Um, hope you enjoyed that live show. So this podcast is quite some time ago because, Matt, the next show is coming up uh, next Monday. So I hope you can make it then. I was reflecting on your discussion of the many facets of Keir Starmer from this was probably at the live show, from early radical to impartial director of public prosecutions to uh, the newly found heir to Blairism. 
and found myself trying to predict which, if any, would be the characteristic or quality which, as you often like to reflect on, constituted a key element to both his rise and ultimate downfall. Could his demise be the hemming in by the fiscal restraints Labour are constructing around them, or will the electorate punish Starmer uh, far too too often saying one thing to appease the electorate and then shifting course in office? Right, well, I think, as you suggest, we're getting ahead of ourselves by (laughs) predicting his uh, downfall. I remember, uh, this is years ago, Robin Cook, who was Shadow Health Secretary in the 1992 election, one that many people thought Labour were going to win. And he was asked a question about a disagreement, a potential disagreement with the Labour leader, Neil Kinnock, about health policy. Robin Cook replied, it was, they used to do daily press conferences during election campaigns. Then Robin Cook replied saying, well, I haven't even become health secretary, so I'd rather not contemplate the circumstances at which I resign from being health secretary. So I think um, we first of all got to um, uh, see uh, Keir Starmer in office and uh, then make judgments. It will be an extraordinary achievement to get to office at the next election, certainly with an overall majority, though he has been hugely helped by a run of Conservative governments that I think probably have been the worst, well, how far back do you want to go for, for, for many, many, many decades? The demise is, is, is impossible to predict. However, the seeds will be sown, as they always are. We don't quite know in what form for the fall. Um, it is it is a Shakespearean arc, and I've given talks about the rise, say, of Margaret Thatcher and her fall, and the two were connected. The same with Tony Blair, same with Harold Wilson, the long-serving ones, let alone the shorter-serving prime ministers. But I do think Keir Starmer has the opportunity to be a big change-maker. The circumstances are there. There is a hunger in the electorate for big change. Or he does face the risk of it not being a turning point, which I have to add to my book on turning points. But he, he, he could become sort of like Ted Heath, who was just overwhelmed by the scale of the turmoil and, and could not be a change maker although he did some big things like joining the common market, but in domestic policy, and he was thrown out within three and a half years. Um, So the stakes are very high, I think. Oh, Matt Watts also says, I run a board games meetup group in East London, so I'd be very happy to provide the games for all rock and roll cooperative shindigs leading up to the election and beyond. Well, uh, Matt, with the uh, state of the world at the moment and uh, everything else, I think we'll take you up on that. We'll have some cooperative shindigs with some board games. Um, anyway, I hope to see you at King's Place uh, next time for uh, another evening of epic drama. Over now to Alison Keyes, our Lincolnshire correspondent. As Alison puts it, you are our Lincolnshire correspondent and Lincolnshire, Portland County. Couple of things, uh, Alison. You mentioned people not knowing Keir Starmer. Uh, a, a guest on Oh God, What Now reported that focus groups really don't know him. They didn't know he had a working class background and a parent employed by the NHS, both apparently markers of trustworthiness, and they often think he inherited his title, the knighthood. Keir Starmer does now talk about himself quite a lot. He's been told he's got to talk about himself quite a lot. 
I think it is now getting across a bit more his background. Anyway, she the other point she makes, uh, it transpired pretty soon after Sunak's speech that some of his uh, replacement train projects were already done, the Metro link to Manchester Airport being one of them. How on earth does this sort of thing get into a speech? Well, that is a good question. And uh, I think is deeply, deeply depressing uh, that we have um, uh, reached the point where someone like Rishi Sunak, who claims to be a new politics person, uh, is kind of... I don't know if you saw the extract of his speech where he lists the um, various new rail projects... He kind of tries to drum up a real excitement, you know, and oh, there's another one, and there's another one as part of his new uh, politics. Then we hear later that these rail projects are all, to quote number 10, illustrative. Um, well, thank you very much for a few more illustrative uh, rail projects. We want trains uh, running on time. We'll have to get Christian Walmart back in, the transport expert, to give us a guide about the latest state of the trains, what a Labour government might do about it, because, yeah, what a mess. Um, now, let's go over to uh, Denise Williett, because she or her mother is part of our uh, focus group in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Those who have voted Conservative, are they moving over to Labour. Uh, we've got a few. Stuart Grant, who um, has actually suggested the theme for the current series for Patreon subscribers. And thank you for subscribing to Patreon. You'll be getting the bonus podcast in the next day or two on political rivalries. Um, the latest one being the rivalry between Dennis Healy and Tony Benn. Already there, Gladstone and Disraeli. We span centuries on that Patreon bonus podcast series. But anyway, Denise Willier's mum, Denise has given me the latest now, her mum was wobbling a bit. Um, then she turned against Sunak over his retreat on some of the uh, net zero targets. Denise Willie, update from my mum after the Labour Party conference. She thinks Starmer, in inverted commas, did better. She thought, I suppose, than Sunak. Uh, she thought he sounded more purposeful and convincing and she's starting to understand where he's coming from. She then segued to say that she also understands what Sunak is trying to achieve and appears to have forgotten her annoyance with him over net zero. Ah, she's picked up somewhere about Labour councils going bankrupt. That's the, the, the Birmingham council. And I had to remind her that a lot of Tory councils are in trouble and that local government has been starved of cash. She was very impressed with uh, Rachel Reeves. She lives in a target constituency. Her feedback is very similar to that which we hear on the doorstep, and we've spoken to a lot of voters. So there we are. You don't need to hire focus groups. Those of you, you know, who spend money on focus groups like the main political parties, just tune in to this podcast and you'd get an entire focus group. So to summarise, Starmer did better. But Sunak did resonate a bit in that she forgot her annoyance with him. Impressed with Rachel Reeves, uh, and that's kind of the, the range that has been picked up more widely in marginal seats and the voters there. Wow, well, there you go. What can, what can go wrong? 
over to uh thank you denise keep us informed with your mum i hope she listens to the podcast as well because she's now becoming famous um and 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 keir starman will be taking notes rishi sunak about your mum's latest thoughts Hugh Carr, I'm cooking chicken risotto as I'm listening. That's great, Hugh. I hope you like it. I mean, I'm a vegetarian, so I won't join in if that's all right. Um, But a great combination cooking and listening to this podcast. Uh, Lots of comparisons around between the 1996 and 2023 conference. Uh, Yeah, I did a bit of that as well. Um, But what about the 2009 conferences, albeit with the colours reversed? Uh, So just to put into context, 2009, um, uh, Gordon Brown, Prime Minister, Cameron, leader of the opposition. A long-term government, that was Brown's, beset by infighting and global headwinds, contrasted with an opposition advancing a very different approach, but not succeeding fully in overturning a decent majority in the upcoming election. Yeah, um, who knows? I mean, It is interesting to look back um, to see whether we can detect echoes from the past. As I say, uh, Hugh, uh, the the Labour conference in Liverpool did remind me of the pre-1997 Labour conference and the Tory disarray in Manchester did remind me of the Tory conference uh, in 1996, pre their 97 slaughter. Uh, but you are equally right to say it could be very different, um, that it could be closer to the circumstances that brought about a hung parliament in 2010. My broader feeling is the past is an unreliable guide and that this will be a unique election. They always are different and various different factors um, come into play each time. We're going to have to follow this one very closely. And and the unexpected always happens. And as I say, I don't want to be parochial about Israel-Gaza, but its impact on British politics will be significant and, of course, came wholly out of the blue. That's what happens in the build-up to elections, uh, and we need to keep together to make sense of it all. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Right, so I've got a lovely photo from uh, uh, Venetia Kane, who was uh, staying uh, near Hale. I I know it well, Venetia. Anyway, uh, she says, oh, yeah, how do you leave a review? Yeah, well, thank you for for asking. All I know is I'm not a technical expert. By the way, it'd be great if you can leave a a review. Uh, Only if you like this podcast, by the way. Please don't leave crap reviews. It depresses me. 
Um, but if you like it, yeah, these five-star reviews uh, get it up the podcast charts, believe it or not. Um, so if you could, I, I don't know, it's, it's easy on the iPhone app, Venetia, you just kind of tap a thing where it says leave a review and you can do it. But but I'm not a great expert, but thank you for asking and thank you for sending the uh, photo, which, uh, yeah, it's of a bird in the estuary. Um, uh, if, I, if that conjures up an image uh, for you all. Um, if it's okay with all of you, I think we're going to uh, leave it there. We've got a, a, a lot to um, reflect on together, and we are in the midst of a fast-moving, deeply alarming uh, global uh, story. Um, oh, yeah, before, sorry, but I'm going to just read one more out, because this is quite fun. This is the kind of, you know, kind of fun thing. Um, amidst the gloom. From Mike Reese. he says, you said probably correctly uh, that Neil Kinnock had been opposition leader for too long by the time of the 1992 election. Nine years. Uh, I've, 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 oh, I'm getting crazy. I think I've read this out. Did I read this out last week? Anyway, Mike says, I'd love to hear your view on Hugh Gateskill. The time of his death in 1963, he had been leader of the opposition for eight years. Yeah, I did read this out last week. My apologies. Um, I've, I've kind of, um, lists have merged. Um, uh, but um, yeah, Hugh Gateskill, it, it was a long, long time. But the big difference now is the media coverage round the clock means a leader of the opposition can only be leader of the opposition for one term. If Keir Starmer loses the election, he will go. You cannot stay on for 10 years uh, just speaking words, not being able to implement policy. People get fed up with you. And they were fed up with Neil Kinnock after nine years by 92. Um, and that was before the kind of social media age and all the rest of it. They've got one chance these days, leaders of the opposition. So there we are. I've expanded a bit, having read the question twice. We're all understandably going crazy. But let's um, keep together. Hope to see as many of you as possible at King's Place next uh, Monday for the next instalment, brand new show, um, where we will try and make sense of it all. And amidst the gloom, have a laugh, have a few glasses of wine, as well as delving deep. Um, but thank you for listening. Do let me know what you think um, as this uh, terrible, terrible Israel-Gaza situation develops in the coming days. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. See you soon. Bye.